0: What's up, friends, and welcome to Episode 7 of Frozen Millionaires. So, what do reality TV stars, Fruity Pebbles, and Home Renovation all have in common? Well, they're all part of the story that I'm telling today about my first property. Uh, today, I'm doing the first installment of a series that I'm calling Storytime. And these podcasts are just me, the microphone, and all the stories that I've accumulated during my career as an entrepreneur. The point Frozen Millionaires is to bring successful people on here and learn their stories so that we can gain insights, gain inspiration, and ultimately just learn from the experience of those who did the thing. These stories are compelling, and I've loved hearing them, and I've loved learning from them. But do I have some stories of my own? You bet your bottom dollar I do. To put it lightly, my friends, it has been a wild ride. It's been almost 20 years of making it on my own and eating when I kill, and believe me when I tell you I have seen some shit. When you ride the roller coaster of entrepreneurship and when you're a guy like me who generally just kind of lets it rip, you're going to end up with a grab bag of chapters that you can not only learn something from, but also get a good amount of entertainment from as well. Sometimes at my expense, and I'm okay with that. These are the highest highs, the lowest lows that you experience if you're going to put yourself out there. I often describe my career as a very noisy graph. One moment, I'm on top of the world. The next moment, I'm completely shot down. Getting shot down, getting punched in the gut happens. It's inevitable. But if you're doing it right and you stick with it, you're also going to have some of the most triumphant moments that are really unlike anything you can experience in this life. And that's the thrill. That's what keeps you coming back. If you make money, the money is great. But to me and to a lot of other entrepreneurs, this is all a game. And money is not the only way we keep score, but it's a big one. And again, it's a game. And you keep coming back for love of the game. I've had days where I've made more money in a week than I did the previous three years combined. I've also had days where months or years of work or more has resulted in total abject failure. I can tell you firsthand when this happens, it's utterly heartbreaking. And there have been times when this has happened, and I've literally cried over it as a grown man. But if you add up everything over my entire career, I've come out ahead. Sometimes by a little, sometimes by a lot, and ultimately, I'm ahead. What matters, though, is that no matter what happened, I kept going every single time. So, that's why I've decided to dive deeper into my own story with you guys and share some of the stories and lessons that I've learned over a 20-year career as an entrepreneur myself. And today, I'm starting with the story of buying my first property and leaving my W-2 job. I was fresh-faced, 23, and didn't know a damn thing, but I did it anyway. Was I successful? Well, listen in and you be the judge. So there I was, 23 years old, fresh out of undergraduate business school and a six-month tour of Australia and Asia, ready to take on the world. My first job in real estate was working for a Portland developer named Robert Ball. Bob had found success in real estate investment at a young age, and he was converting historical buildings in Portland into condominiums. He moonlighted as a reserve police officer, but he was really moving up in the development world, so definitely he was a good guy to hitch my wagon to. I was hired on first as a property manager for an apartment building he was converting to condos in northwest Portland. Uh, My job was to manage the building and keep the peace as we told everyone they were getting kicked out of their apartments so we could renovate them and sell them as condos. So basically, I was like the whipping boy for a building full of people who weren't really thrilled that they were getting booted. Oddly enough, it was the former owners of the building who were also residents who gave me the most trouble. Little coalitions formed to try and stop the condo conversion, and none of them really ended up going anywhere, but my job was to spy on the rebellion and keep it from boiling over. Eventually, they all left, and I was moved over to the main office to help with the development side of things. It didn't pay much, but let's be honest, I wasn't worth a whole lot. It was a good first gig to get some practical experience in real estate, and I did have some proximity to a guy who was doing big things. Did I like Bob? Bob. It's funny how my perspective has changed since I left that job after about a year. If you asked me back then, I would have told you that Bob was impossible to please, super rigid, hard to work for, and frankly kind of an asshole. But looking back on it now that I have the benefit of having spent a lot of years as the boss rather than the employee, I understand a lot better why he was the way he was, and I'm actually very thankful that I had an experience with a hard boss early on in my career. Bob and I got along just fine, and we parted on good terms. But I was young at the time, so there were plenty of times he'd have to just crack the whip. And I think Bob never really liked having to crack the whip, because after a while, he hired on an office manager to do it for him. And man, oh man, did he ever find the guy. The newly hired office manager was a guy named C.W. Jensen. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he was something of a reality TV star at the time. CW was a longtime commentator on those world's craziest police videos that were popular in the late 90s and early 2000s. He was basically the guy you called for your cop show when you needed a tough-talking guy for some sound bites in between the crazy clips of people running from the cops. Sort of like an early-stage YouTube reaction video guy. He was a recently retired cop and very much a no-nonsense guy, and he didn't like me one bit. To him, I was a back-talking slacker 20-something-year-old kid who didn't know shit. And he was kind of right. But he was fresh off of being a cop and still very much in that mode and mindset. So at any other point in his professional career, he would take guys like me, spike them onto the concrete like a football, and shove them in the back of a police car. Problem solved. But he wasn't a cop anymore, and you're not allowed to tackle and handcuff people in the office. So occasionally I'd poke the bear because I was young and kind of an asshole. And goddamn, the guy was just so quick to lose his temper and turn all shades of crimson and crush whatever he was holding in his hands into powder because I I just couldn't resist. So when CW would get pissed at me, you could literally watch this man's brain short circuit in real time as he held off the urge to body slam me like a perp. I think a lot of the time he spent at his desk was just him and his thoughts, trying in his mind, to chart a justifiable course to putting me in a chokehold right there in the office. And there were a few times that I was at least 90% sure he was about to launch me through the drywall, which he very easily could have done because he was a very large, very imposing guy. But instead, he'd get pissed, I'd see him turn purple, he'd take a deep breath, lean in very closely, and barely above a whisper, tell me to shut the fuck up. Out of self-preservation, I complied every time. Trust me, you would have too. So as I'm working at my W-2, I am on the hunt for my first property. I didn't have any money, but keep in mind, this was the days of stated income loans and 100% financing. So I was looking for a place that I could buy, ideally a duplex, and live in one side while I fix up the other. Never mind the fact that I had zero experience with home renovation, but I'd read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was convinced that real estate was going to be the way that I was going to make it big. I didn't have my real estate license yet, so I enlisted the help of a guy who helped my parents sell their house some years back. This was a guy named Lee Davies. If you've heard of Lee, then you might be involved with real estate on the west side of Portland. Back then, and to this day, the guy is one of the top producing brokers in the west suburbs of Portland. So, I met with Lee, and he passed me off to an underling to help me find a property. I get paired up with a guy named Dirk Hamira, and if you've heard of Dirk, it's probably for the same reason that you've heard of Lee Davies. Dirk would go on to become one of the top producing brokers on the west side, and maybe the entire city. But anyway, at that point in time, Dirk was kind of new-ish to real estate, but he was pretty solid, near as I could tell. Not that I had any point of reference, but whatever, I had a guy, and my team was off to a running start. So Dirk starts sending me listings, and I start combing through the internet for deals. It never even occurred to me to try and source a deal off-market. I was only looking for deals that were listed. Big mistake. I must have looked at a thousand deals before I found one that I liked. Just like any homeowner, I was having to make some sacrifices. The biggest one was location. I wanted this thing to have decent cash flow, and that was really hard to do in a nice neighborhood. So I had to pick a neighborhood that had the potential to improve, but was lower-priced. Back in the early 2000s, neighborhoods in inner northeast Portland were kind of hit or miss. Irvington and Alameda were both really nice, but there was very little multifamily there, and it was priced accordingly. I was looking at some of the grittier areas, like St. John's, Sabin, and Woodlawn. These neighborhoods have all gotten a whole lot nicer for the most part, but back then, they were a little dicey. So I find a duplex in the Vernon neighborhood, right off of northeast Killingsworth. Not a great area at that time, but decent proximity to areas that were nice and upcoming like Alberta. Each unit had about 1,400 square feet with about 800 square feet above grade and the rest in a basement. So about 2,800 square feet priced at $180,000. It caught my eye because the price per square foot, even for back then, seemed really low. One side was vacant and in half-decent shape. I'd say it was livable. The other side had almost no pictures and was reported to be in rough shape, quote-unquote. It was occupied by tenants who were paying about $500 per month, pretty low even for back then. So I make my offer, and just like that, we are under contract for about $180k. I calculated my payment at about $1,000 per month, so things are off to a good start, and my real estate investing career is officially off to the races. So next comes inspection day, my very first one. So my buddy's dad was a home inspector, and he was a really good one. Mark Lindgren was a quiet guy, but he knew a ton about houses, and I knew he'd shoot straight with me. Whatever advice I got from him was good as gold. But his manner was pretty unassuming, though, so you had to do some decoding. Mark would use the same tone of voice to tell you a screw needed to be tightened, as he would tell you that there was five feet of standing water in the basement. So you had to listen carefully and do some decoding. But I had Dirk, and even though Dirk had an incentive to have me close on the deal so he could make a buck, by that point I had interacted with him enough to trust that he wasn't going to lead me to a bad place. So we arrive on inspection day and knock on the door of the occupied unit. The tenant had been given notice, so he knows we're coming, but he refuses to answer the door and we have no way of getting in. So Mark goes and does all the other portions of the inspection while we wait for the guy to wake up. He finally wakes up around noon and lets us in, and immediately it becomes clear why this property was priced the way it was. The unit smelled like a dumpster. It was a total mess. And there were porno magazines strewn all over the place, and not your dad's Playboys. I'll just leave it at that. Then there was the tenant, and he was a real piece of work. He spoke not a word and just sat on the couch holding what I think was a mixing bowl in his lap, but like a a huge bowl, And he proceeded to eat, by far, the biggest bowl of Fruity Pebbles that I have ever seen anyone eat in my entire life. And probably the entire box was in that bowl, maybe more. I'm watching him eat, and he just stared straight ahead with this blank look on his face, really just haphazardly shoveling Fruity Pebbles into his mouth as he's flanked by porno magazines, just oblivious to the world around him, sitting on a couch that looks like he wipes his ass with it, in an apartment that looks like a bomb hit it. A bomb filled with really gross porno. This would be the first of many times in my career when I would think to myself, holy shit, how do people live like this? So while we're inspecting, the dude just never moved, never said a word, just sat on the couch, zoned out. He was also eating a bag of chips, and while he was eating, a mix of cereal, milk, and chips were getting stuck in his facial hair, and this concoction was slowly dribbling down his goatee and back into the giant bowl fruity pebbles welcome young george to real estate investment so i'm watching the sky and looking around the unit i look over at dirk and dirk looks like he's trying his level best to keep a straight face and not run as fast as he can back to his car the look on dirk's face was about what you'd expect from a guy who'd spent all of his young real estate career in the west suburbs of portland credit to him though he held it together and saw it for what it was This was a good space with a bad tenant who was treating the unit poorly and needed to be removed so the unit could be rehabbed and re-rented. But keep in mind, I had never seen anything like this before. In comparison with things that I would see later in my career, this was nothing, par for the course. But at the time, I was freaking out. I did not want this guy as a tenant, especially if I was going to occupy the other side of the duplex. To say I was nervous about the whole thing was a pretty big understatement. They don't talk about things like this in business school. So I huddle up with Dirk, and we decide to tell the seller's agent that they need to get rid of this guy as a contingency of us closing. Back then, the rule was that you could give a tenant a 30-day notice on a month-to-month tenancy, and they would have to leave. Imagine that, having control of your own property. But anyway, it took a little longer than 30 days, but they got rid of the guy. We had the seller pay my closing costs, and with just a few grand that I'd saved up, we closed on the duplex. Just like that? I'm a homeowner. So now that I've got my own house, I have zero income coming in from it. So I move in, and I decide to rent out the extra bedrooms in my unit while I renovate the other side. Nobody I knew was looking for a place to rent, so I posted an ad on Craigslist. You can see where this is going. I sorted through a few crazy people before I found a young couple in their 20s who seemed relatively sane. Emphasis on relatively. They each paid me $300 per month, and just like that, I had my first rental income. Were they clean? No. Were they quiet? Actually, yeah, for the most part. They were a little out there, though. Sometimes I would wake up to go to work, and they would be in the living room doing lines of cocaine off of my coffee table. But they would be watching a movie rather than hurling things off the roof. And after living at my fraternity house in college, it would have taken a lot to shock me. So let's just leave it at that. So generally, it worked out, and they paid their rent. And meanwhile, I was slowly but surely, mainly slowly, chipping away at the rehab on the other side of the duplex. Remember when you could just buy a couple of pizzas and your friends would show up and help you paint your apartment? I took full advantage of that. After I'd gotten rid of all the junk in the place and sprayed about 80 gallons of Febreze, it wasn't looking altogether terrible anymore. But it just needed a ton of work. Trim, bathroom, refinishing the hardwood floors, a bunch of kitchen repairs, and a very thorough paint job to get rid of the smell. Plus a whole lot more. All of these things, except for the hardwood floor refinishing, I did myself and with the help of some friends and a handyman or two. This was also an introduction to hiring contractors. One guy I remember asked me if he could have a beer on the job. I said, sure, as long as the work gets done. This guy proceeded to drink at least six beers every time he showed up. And when he ran out, he would ask me for one. I wasn't loving this situation, so I let him go one day. And that's the day I learned that some contractors can be serious degenerates and there's nothing quite like an angry drunk contractor. So I was back to doing it myself. All while doing this, I sized up several trades and skills. Electrical? Mm, Turns out it's not that hard to swap out a light fixture. Drywall? Eh, Yep, I clearly suck at that and this is a real skill. Painting? For rental, no problem. My budget was basically extra money that I had left over from my W-2, and it was enough to get the job done. After it was completed, I listed the unit for rent for $800 per month, and it rented pretty much immediately to an architect. Between the rent from my two roommates, plus the rent from the other side of the duplex, I was cash flow positive, living for free, and making a few hundred bucks on top. It was a tough road to get to that spot, but I felt pretty smart. The only thing I didn't love about it was the neighborhood. Kind of like Art Alexakis in the Everclear song, I Will Buy You a New Life, I was a scared white boy living in a black neighborhood, and I got harassed on the regular. Also, one time I had some friends over, and while we were inside the house, a guy stole my friend's car. So mostly I just kept my head down, but if you know me personally, you know that I'm a lifelong runner. And when I went for runs in the neighborhood, it was sometimes a little scary and I got yelled at a lot. I didn't love it. So I missed living on 21st Avenue and being able to walk places and not feel threatened and generally just feel safe. I'd initially conceived the project as a house hack, but after a while I figured out the project had made enough money to stand alone on its own merits and I didn't need to make a big sacrifice in my lifestyle to keep it going. So after about a year, I moved out, rented my side of the duplex, and bought a condo in the Pearl District as my personal residence. This whole time, I'd kept my W2, but after going through this process of buying and fixing up the duplex, I was convinced that I was better off being in business for myself. When I quit my W2, I'm not sure what I expected, maybe a backroom high five from Bob and CW, but it turns out they both seemed to be a little sad that I was leaving. If I had to hazard a guess as to why their tune had changed... I think it was because I told them about how the duplex renovation was kicking my ass and I'm pretty sure they figured that this was my first taste of what the real world was like and it was delivering to me the ass kicking that I so richly deserved and I was finally growing up and maybe just maybe I wouldn't turn out to be a total shithead after all. I don't know for sure, but that's my best guess. So I got my real estate license, quit my job, and set off on the road to being a full-time broker and investor. So that's the story of my first property and how it led me to make the decision to ditch the W-2 life and start living the life of an entrepreneur. Looking back on it, I think one of the main reasons that I was successful were the guardrails that I had along the way. Working with a broker that I trusted gave me the confidence to do things I'd never done before. Having an inspector I trusted helped me size up exactly what needed to be fixed and what didn't. My loan officer also took the time to explain to me exactly what all of these line items meant and where my money was going. I never hesitated to ask any single question, even if I was running the risk of sounding stupid. Yeah, we both knew that I had very little income and no experience, but all these things were quantified. So even though I was young and didn't know very much, I knew where to turn to find the answers. But that's what you have to do as an entrepreneur sometimes. Sometimes you have to leap and then look. But, and this is key, you have to know where to look and don't stop looking until you've found what you need. I'm the type of guy that will spend a lot of time sharpening my axe before I have to chop down a tree. But analysis paralysis is what kills more deals than anything else, in my opinion. If you really feel like it, you can talk yourself out of any deal, no matter how good it is. So I'm not saying be reckless, but be bold. And oftentimes there's a very fine line between those two things. Plenty of times, things go wrong and deals go bad. I've had it happen, and I'll be talking about this on future episodes. But on this one, it worked out great. My first deal was a big success by pretty much any objective measure, and even though a lot of it was not pleasant at all, I learned a ton. So my advice to you, if you find any similarity to the situation that I was in as a young adult, is to just friggin' do it. You'll figure it out. And along the way, you're going to get knocked around a little bit, but this is not a bad thing. My skin is 10 times thicker today than it was back then. Things that would have kept me awake at night no longer fazed me, even a little bit. Back then, I didn't embrace the cold. I just thought I'd chosen a path that was kicking my ass for no reason. But now, many years later, I see it for what it is. It was something that I did that was hard at the time, but totally worth it because it made me stronger, smarter, and better equipped for bigger and better challenges. So that's the story of quitting my job and buying my first property. If you liked this story, then be sure to catch future Storytime episodes on Frozen Millionaires because I got a lot of them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Frozen Millionaires, and I hope you enjoy the story, and maybe you can apply it to an experience of your own. You can find Frozen Millionaires on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts, and if you enjoyed any particular part of this episode or any other episode in particular, then uh, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at MRD underscore Portland or on Facebook at MRD Portland with no spaces. And I'll see you in the next episode. And until then, as always, be sure to embrace the cold to ignite the dream. See you then.